Well, good morning again, everybody, and uh, we are so happy to be able to have this uh, time together as we dive into God's Word, and, and uh, if you're new with us, I just want to welcome you to Palmerado Christian Church, a place in which uh, we want to help everyone get plugged into the people and the purpose of the church, a place in which we recognize we are not perfect people, but we are people who have been and are still being changed by God to make a change in this world, and a church in which we recognize we are called to be witnesses to who God is, both with our words and sharing our faith, but also with our actions and serving the world. And so if that sounds like a place that you would like to, to join us, we would be so grateful to come alongside you in this journey. And uh, my name is JP, and I'm the pastor here, and, and we're excited to be able to spend this time together. If we've not met yet, I would love to meet you uh, after service and pray with you, come alongside you, just say hello. But we are in the midst of a series uh, called I Am, and this is the second week of the series, the second Sunday, and, and we started it last week with Easter. And this idea behind this series was for us to look at the seven statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John in which he says that I am. And the reason why this is important, the reason why this was so groundbreaking at the time and so groundbreaking for us still, is that it ties into this idea from who God is and his name that he gives us in Exodus 3.14. So on the note on the um, screen over here, we're going to look at that this part where Moses at the burning bush is talking to God, and God says, you know, let my people go, or rather, he says, go get my people. Um, and then uh, he ends up going to um, say, well, God, who, who am I? He's like, well, I'll be with you. He says, well, then who are you? Who should I say is sending me? And this is how God responds in verse 14. He said, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, or sent me to you. And it's this idea of I am is the word is the name Yahweh and I am who I am is this idea that was so clear to the Hebrew people to the Jewish people such a clear um, statement of his divinity so he's saying I am who I am I am who's always been I'm the uncaused cause I'm the one who's always been here I'm the one who always will be here and I am the one who's with you now and so when Jesus comes on the scene thousands of years later, and then he comes up, and when he has these moments in John, that there are people who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He just, you know, he knew he was a moral teacher, nothing more. But it is so clear through these statements, these seven statements, that when he says, I am, he is directly hearkening back to this idea of going to the name of God, and he is claiming and proclaiming his divinity. And so these are statements from which we can draw great wisdom and great application for our own lives. And so last week when we started this series, we did it through Easter, and we call it, it was the I am, the resurrection, and the life. And that was from John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. And this is what the main point was last week, is that Easter isn't just about how Jesus resurrected 2,000 years ago. It's also about how he is, he is the resurrection and is still providing hope. And in the midst of what our community has been through the past two days, 24 hours or so, it's those last four words that I hope we can grasp hold of today. That Jesus is still providing hope. That he is still with us. He did not just come to earth, die, raise back to life, and then forget about us. But that he left a comforter. He left a guide. He left the Holy Spirit to be with us. 
And Jesus is alive and he is still providing hope. He is the resurrection. He is the life and he is still providing hope today. And we need to take hold of that and allow that to be our anchor, our firm foundation in a world that is shifting and in a world that is difficult, in a world that is broken and depraved. So we come into this morning with the idea that Jesus, last week, I am the resurrection and the life. Today, we're talking about how he says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And with that in mind, will you pray with me as we dive into his word together? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you for how you are still providing hope for us today. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the bread of life. You are the one who provides our sustenance our satisfies our hunger you are the one who brings us into fellowship with you and all these different ideas we get from the being the bread of life and so lord i pray that as we dive into your word that i would decrease that you would increase that you would speak in a personal powerful impactful way to each and every person that is here in person this morning and each person that is listening online later may if they hear nothing else may they know that they are prayed for cared for and loved by us, and that they are loved by you, and that you can provide hope. And so, Lord, we dive into your word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I don't know if you can think about the time when you were just incredibly hungry and famished. I call those days all days. And so it's one of those where I just remember you're so hungry. You just feel like you could eat everything. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. And it's this idea that sometimes it's like, hey, have a snack. And I'm like, that's nice. So when you go to, um, there's an idea like people can have like a high tea, like a, like a nice like tea meal. Um, and those are just like, like crackers and sandwiches that fit in the palm of my hand, which is like, it's very expensive, it's very nice, but it does not satisfy my hunger, right? I would want like 12 of those and then also pizza afterwards. Like, so it's this idea of like, we recognize that there are hungers that we have and there are times when we're super hungry, yet, you know, what we are offered or what we choose to partake in in which to quench and satisfy that hunger is not always something that truly can satisfy us. In fact, there are ad campaigns that, that be filled, fill into this or feed into this rather. And so um, I just want to, when it comes to this idea of satisfying, uh, I want you to quickly watch this uh, commercial um, on the side screens here as we watch this together. Very sorry. And we're gonna get the phone, his phone. Uh, out of you as soon as I have to I have to take this what? just a little pinch sweetheart hi, I left hi, my phone in totally I'm having phone issues bye uh, we're gonna fix this needless to say okay resuming play Snickers satisfies uh there's several things about that that are great. One is that I like that he has the same rule that I have, that if my wife calls, I pick it up. Just never in that circumstance. Um, but also just the idea of like, oh, it's just going to be a little pinch. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're answering a phone within his body. Um, but it's just this idea you're careless when you're, not, when you're hungry. But the, the point is like this whole ad idea is Snickers Satisfies. I looked up online on YouTube and there's Snickers Satisfies commercials from 1982 before I was born. And so this is something that has been a marketing campaign for decades, this idea that Snickers Satisfies. And yet, although they are delicious, that's not enough to actually satisfy my hunger. And yet, though we will turn to other things in our lives to satisfy our deepest hungers, we recognize that in the end, 
It's not enough. In the end, there is nothing here on this earth that can satisfy a hunger that has been developed in heaven. That God has put eternity in our hearts. And so if God has put eternity in our hearts, something that is earthly will not be able to fully fill that void. Will not be able to fully provide that hope we need and will not be able to fully satisfy. So our main point for today is the idea that while our stomachs may rumble and our hearts may grumble, Jesus alone can satisfy our hunger. While our hearts may, or sorry, while our stomachs may rumble and our hearts may grumble, Jesus alone can satisfy our hunger. In order to dive into this passage or this idea, we're going to be in John chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Um, if you have the church Bible, if you're new with us, there's a Bible in front of this, in the seat below you or in front of you as well. And it's going to be on page 1657, 1657. And we're also going to be in Exodus chapter 16 to get some background here and some context. And that's on page 110. And so if, you've, uh, if you want to put like your bulletin in Exodus chapter uh, 16, you can do that. But this is where we're going to be. And we're going to look at these three aspects here together of rumbling stomachs, grumbling hearts, and satisfied hunger. So the first one we have here is rumbling stomachs. And so... We're going to read from John chapter 6. We're going to start with 25 through 36. And now, to just provide the context as a quick reminder, uh, earlier in John chapter 6 is when Jesus fed the 5,000 men, not including women and children. And then everyone left, and they were able to have their fill. There were leftover bread, leftover fish. And then Jesus walks on water to the other side of the lake, and the, the disciples see him over there. And then the people start looking for him. And they start searching for Jesus. And now we did a sermon on this passage and the other parts of this John 6 passage from the Friending series a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago now. But we skipped this section about him being the bread of life because we knew we were going to dive into it together this morning. I just wanted to be able to give you the context of what happens when we join the conversation in verse 25. So verse 25 says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, You're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness as it it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Remember, they had just seen him produce the miracle of feeding of the 5,000 men, not including women and children. They had just seen him provide this bread, and yet they go and say, well, what sign are you going to do? And there's two points that we're going to go under this rumbling stomachs idea. The first one is this idea that we often, we often try to satisfy our hunger with things that perish. Or if you want to use the verbiage that Jesus used in the passage, with things that spoil. 
that they were able to get bread at the time, but that bread was only good for that one specific day, and then it would spoil the next day. That it was not a bread that gave everlasting life. It, it fed so that they could have physical life. And so it's this idea we try to satisfy our hunger with things that perish. That it's like this idea of if you work out or you're trying to go on a hike or you, you're very thirsty, and at the end of it, it's like you could have a big glass of water that would actually quench your thirst, or if you choose to do like code red like Mountain Dew, which is a horrible choice at any point in life, but especially when it comes to trying to quench your thirst because we know that soda or any of these other drinks might taste good going down the gullet, but they don't actually satisfy or quench our thirst, that then we just want more. And we so often will try to find the satisfaction for the deepest hungers in our hearts with things that in the end will perish. That we decide that, okay, if I can just be the smartest person, if I could just go to the best school and then I could study the best major, then I could get the best job, then I could be able to purchase the best house after paying off all that student debt, then I end up going and get the right career, I elevate enough, and if I get enough position and recognition and money in my bank account, then, then I'm going to be able to be okay. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just that I need the approval of people. Maybe it's the idea that I feel like I need to be perfect in all ways because it's only through my perfection that I can build a big enough shield to hide my insecurities that hold me back. Maybe it's something that we think that if we can find that which will provide our identity and satisfy the deepest aches for our hearts, the deepest aches of what is my purpose and why am I here and am I lovable and do I matter? And if we try to find our lovability inside our bank account or our popularity or our position, if we try to find the answer of am I able to, do I matter in how big my corner office is or how many square feet my house is, if we do those things, they are going to perish. Those are going to spoil, that our identity cannot be found, the eternal questions of our hearts cannot be found in temporary solutions on this earth. And so we often try to do this. We often try to find the satisfaction for our hunger with things that perish. That when Paul's writing to the Philippians in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 19, he talks about this idea of trying to find our, our identity in our stomach, in our gut, in our things that we want most here on this earth to be filled with present things and temporal things that will not last, that will spoil and perish. He says this, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Trying to find an answer to an eternal question with an earthly answer will never satisfy. No matter how hard we want it to be true, it's not. It's not true that those things can satisfy. So let's not look at things that perish or spoil for our satisfaction of our hunger. The next thing that we see in this passage, starting in verse 32, is the idea that we often give people credit for God's provision, which in and of itself is not a good thing. But what it does is it perpetuates this idea. It increases, as our notes say, it increases our hunger for other people to save us. That, as he said in verse 32, when Jesus responds to them, he talks about this idea that, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. They said, what sign do you have? Moses gave us bread. He said, it wasn't Moses. It was God. 
And you're giving credit to a man, a person, for what God has provided. And when we do this, we end up falling into the same trap that they see here, that increases our hunger for someone else to save us, for another person to save us, or another idol to save us, or another earthly satisfaction to try to truly save us, which cannot happen. It's like building our house upon the sand, rather upon the rock of following the words of Jesus. And so it's like this idea if when I get bad headaches, when I get bad headaches, I end up going through a process in order to try to knock them out. And what I do is I'll when I start to feel a headache. Then what I'll do is I'll get some headache oil, like an essential oil, and I'll put it on the back of my neck because it provides a little bit of warmth and a little bit of relief there. Then what I do is I try to drink some water. Sometimes it's hot water because the water will also hydrate me while at the same time providing the heat that just kind of feels a little relieving. Then the next step is often that I will go ahead and go to a microwave and I have like a sock filled with rice. I know. And it's like you heat that up and you put that on the back of your neck or you could put that on your, on your face. I also have a headache hammock that I heat up in the microwave, I lay down on the ground, and it has a little bit of an indent here, so when I lay down on it, it provides this pressure right at the base of the skull. Then, if that doesn't help, what I end up doing is starting to take Excedrin migraine. In order to take Excedrin migraine, I need to eat. I don't feel like eating. So then what I end up doing is going and I make top ramen noodle soup, I know, dinner of champions, and I end up eating that because that has enough salt to help me feel good, and that's the warmth. Then I take the medicine, then I lay down, and then I just hope that it goes away. I know. Thank you. I just took 47 seconds to explain headache relief. And so it's one of those where I do that and then I'm like, hey, what, what, what helped you with headache? Oh, man. Have you tried Excedrin migraine? Oh, man. Have you been able to, have you just tried this headache hammock? Oh, man. Have you tried Top Ramen? And it becomes these things where we turn to these other things where I give credit to that. And yet when it comes to me actually trying to hope that I get better, I end up going through all those things first without being like, God, can you help me with my headache? It becomes, the, it becomes the last resort rather than our first option. That when we give people credit for what God has provided, it creates within us this idea that something else will save us, and God is the last resort rather than the first option. And so then what happens is that we go and we start to ask our friends, hey, hey, I'm having this problem. Can you maybe help me out of what to do? And, and we seek their advice. I'm like, okay, well, I'll take that into consideration. Now, what about my family? What do they have to say? I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll take that into consideration. And then maybe we say, well, I still don't think, you know, these aren't professionals or experts. Maybe I'll listen to what Oprah has to say and what the talk shows have to say. Maybe that will provide the direction. And then if that doesn't work, we just say, well, forget it. I'm just going to Google it because Google knows all. And then we send that. And then what ends up happening is that we look in all these different areas to find the answers for our questions, and God becomes an afterthought. God becomes the last resort rather than our first option. And so when it comes to headaches, I can, we can joke about that, and, and when it comes to other things, yeah, we could joke about that, but when we're looking for something and searching something for Google, we're not ever going to find the answer we're really searching for at the deepest hungers of our hearts that'll give us answers. But it's not enough for us to say, oh, we're giving credit to something else to giving us the answer that we need. And instead, we got to give credit to God for his provision so that our hunger is not for other people and turning to those outside sources like family, friends, Oprah, and Google. Instead, it's this idea of being able to turn to the Lord and have him be the first resort, the second resort, and all resorts at the, until the end. 
So these rumbling stomachs, these, these ideas of what causes us to hunger for something and hope that something temporal or temporary will satisfy an eternal hunger. And so then we move to, to grumbling hearts. We're going to see this in John chapter 6, verses 41 through 43. I'm going to jump down a little bit. And this is what happens after this in part of the story. At this, the Jews there began, this is still in John 6, began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Verse 43, short and sweet, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. So in order for us to get the context, I'm going to ask you to, to jump back if you kept your notes onto or a page onto Exodus 16, because what happens here is that we, know, we start to notice a consistent connection with what happens in Exodus 16, that there's a call for a sign and that there's a provision from God, but then a grumbling occurs from his people. And so with provision, with grumbling, these are all words that and go back to this Exodus 16 to give context. Exodus 16 is right after, um, in Exodus 14, they've crossed through the Red Sea. The Israelites have escaped um, Egypt, that the plagues had just happened. 14, they crossed through. 15, there's the song of Miriam, and they're praising God for how they, pr they provided an escape for his people. And then after that, there starts to be a little bit of grumbling in the second half of 15. They don't even finish chapter 15 without there being grumbling and complaining. That they had just seen these incredible things, and yet, like us, we might see incredible things, and yet, there are still times where just shortly thereafter, we have a time of struggle. And we, we grumble, and we complain, we have a difficult time. So I want to read uh, the first note that's underneath grumbling hearts, this idea that we often hunger for the comforts of captivity instead of the hardship of freedom. Let's see what this is. Exodus 16, 1 through 3. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and, sent, and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of mead and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death that listen to what they're saying. They're saying they would rather go and get the comfort, the food, the pots of meat and eating it, whatever they want. They, were, they would rather go to the comfort of their past captivity in slavery rather than endure a hardship in the freedom that God provides. That this is the same thing that happens to us when we go and we turn to previous temptations or, or hurts or habits or hangups. When we go to things in the past that at least they feel comfortable. We know they're wrong. We know they're sinful. We know that they're bad for us. They know that they have no good effects. Yet because they're comfortable to us, because they're familiar to us, we would rather go back to the comforts of our captivity. Because the idea of being able to lay down on, on a rock that is uncomfortable as our pillow might feel more comforting because it's familiar than being able to actually sleep on an actual bed that has Egyptian cotton or whatever it may be because we're used to our captivity to the point where it feels like this is where I'm safe. When in reality, it's like going into a jail cell and, and being able to be set free yet every night asking the warden to bind your shackles once more. And then complaining why we're not free. 
So for me, when I, I struggle with, uh, I just like food, and um, I don't struggle with it, I enjoy food, but it's one of those where I have a struggle of like, I want to eat a lot. And so this passage, it's this idea of, I had a conversation with a friend of mine at my previous church who went through Weight Watchers, lost 70 pounds, and has kept it off for over a decade. And so he's so meticulous at counting his points. He's so good at being able to just be aware and have that ability to just say no when he needs to say no, and then eat when he gets to eat. And it's this idea that he shared with me this thought that, that resonated with me. He said, you know, I'd, I'd, at the time I'd stepped on a scale and saw a number that I never thought I would see between my own two feet. And in that moment, I was like, I, I was just struggling. And he said, you know what, either way, you're going to have to make a sacrifice. Either you sacrifice food that you like and eating as much as you like and being able to do that. Either you sacrifice that so that you can live a healthier life or you sacrifice your long-term health. You sacrifice your confidence. You sacrifice your ability to be there for your family. Either way is a sacrifice, but you can choose which sacrifice you make. And it struck me because I would say, well, I can't stop eating this or I can't stop eating that. And, and it became this, this stumbling block. But it's this idea that why am I going back to the comfort of the captivity of being overwhelmed with food and thinking that food is what's going to provide a comfort for me? Oh, it's been a hard day at work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to snack and have a dessert. Or, oh, it's just been, you know, I'm just, I just need a little break. And so I'm going to eat some food. I mean, that's just going back to the warden and asking him to shackle me when I've been set free that I've lost 40 pounds and I've gained about 27 of it back. Again, it's like going back to this comfort of captivity rather than finding the hardship of freedom worthwhile and able to withstand. And so we have these grumbling hearts that A, show us that we hunger for the comforts of captivity, the pots of meat, the good food that the, the uh, Israelites talked about. And then the next section is verses four through eight, show us that we grumble when we aren't grateful. We grumble when we aren't grateful. Verses 4 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. That's so that for the Sabbath, they would have enough for the next day that they wouldn't have to do any work. Verse 6, so Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you know, or sorry, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. That they had received or were going to be receiving daily provision of daily bread and quail in order for them to survive in the wilderness. And we see that he provides this for all 40 years that they're wandering. It's not that they went hungry. It's that they were provided for. And yet, because we didn't, they didn't get the, the food that they wanted, how they wanted, when they wanted, or the type of food that they wanted, that then they start to grumble because, well, God, you just want us to die out here in the desert. We would rather die in the comfort of our own captivity and slavery rather than to have to to endure some hardship and the freedom you've provided. And so then we go to this part of we're not grateful for the freedom, we're longing for the captivity. We're not grateful for what God has done. And so we grumble because it's not the way we want it, how we want it, when we want it. And let me be clear. 
Does that mean that there are times we cannot cry out to God? Of course we cry out to God. Can we say that we're upset about something, that we're mad about something, that we're sad about something, that we're scared of something? Absolutely, we can do that. That we see in the book of Psalms that he handles all of our emotions and we could cry out and we see that as modeled in the Psalms. So it's not saying don't have bad feelings. What this is talking about is just this idea of being grateful for the good things that we do have when in the midst of enduring hardship. Being grateful for the fact that even if we were to die today, that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ that was of no works of our own for our own righteousness or as filthy rags, but because of Jesus who knew no sin became sin, we might be experiencing the righteousness of God. That we can be grateful for things in the midst of heartache, but it doesn't mean we can't have negative feelings. So just want to be clear about that. Now I want to close this last few minutes we have together as we go back to John chapter 6 and to finish off this story, that with rumbling stomachs, those hungers that we have in our lives, that an eternal hunger can only be quenched or satisfied with an eternal God, an eternal life. And then this idea of grumbling hearts, of lack of gratitude or seeking captivity over our own freedom. The last section we have here is this idea that satisfied hunger from John 6, 47 through 51 and the first note is that the first bread from heaven still resulted in death. The true bread from heaven provides eternal life. John 6, 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give you, or sorry, which I will give for the life of the world. And we're going to get into the response from the Jewish people in, in a few seconds. But what it shows us is that God had provided that physical food to get the Israelites through that time. But physical food and physical provision, again, is not enough to satisfy an eternal hunger. And so we see here that it's through the bread of life, Jesus Christ, the one who provides fellowship with us through the bread. Breaking a meal together is an is a idea of fellowship. And we see that in the table of showbread back in the tabernacle in Exodus 26, that, that there is fellowship that is offered because Jesus is the bread of life, that we who once were far from God have been brought near to God because of what Jesus did. That bread also represents the provision, the fact that he provided Yes, physically for us, but even more so, he provides eternal life and hope that we can hold on to in the midst of tragedy and brokenness and confusion. And then we see that that alone is the eternal life, like we said last week, that eternal life isn't when we die, what comes next. Eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son whom he sent. So eternal life happens now. It happens at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. So eternal life can be had this very moment. That alone is what's going to satisfy our deepest hunger. Now, I want to share this idea that in Psalm chapter 38, verse 4, we have this idea that we will taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed are those who take their refuge in him. That we taste and see that the Lord is good because there's this idea that goes from if you look at the five different senses, there's a, a depth in which or an order in which we go from furthest 
to closest. This idea of hearing about something first, that, that we can just hear about something, and until then, so if we've heard about it, the next step is then we often see it for ourselves. And then when we're close enough to see it, we might start to get the aroma, the smell of it. We might be able to, to get a little bit closer, like, oh, that smells like a good meal tonight, or oh, that smells like, you know, a good perfume or whatever it is. Then after smelling, if you get closer, then that's when you can actually feel. You can actually touch. You can actually get to that point of being able to feel on the outside how close God is. And yet the fifth sense is the one of tasting. It's the one in which it goes from not being an external thing, but it's an internal digestion of it. So then you take a bite of something and you see that it is good. That when we equate this to God is that many of us may have heard about God, yet we've only heard about it because of what other people have said. And yet we've not seen him work yet. But then from hearing to seeing, and then we start to be able to actually experience, oh, I, I can see from a distance, I can understand. Then we get to a point where we're close enough to be able to, to smell him. And that, that sounds kind of weird, but it's this idea of being able to, to be close enough that when we see incense and things in the, in the um, Exodus and the tabernacle and this idea of being able to be close enough to offer up the incense to him as a way of praying to him and these sorts of things. So we're getting closer to him. Then we get to touch and we get to see, as Thomas did, that we could touch and see the wounds of Jesus, that we can experience eternal life and, and being able to get close to him and that we're able to have that right relationship with him and that closeness and intimacy. And then we get to the point where Psalm 34 talks about that we don't just see or hear or smell or touch, but we taste. We take all the things we hear about what we've heard and seen and smelled and felt about them, and then we get to take it inside of us. We get to ingest, and as Psalm 34, 8 in your note says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so we're going to close with this last note here for us is this idea that satisfied hunger shows us that the first bread is resulted in death still, but Jesus provides eternal life as the bread of life. And then the notes there say that we remember that Jesus alone satisfies our deepest hunger and thirst by taking communion. That we recognize that by taking communion is not just something that we do every week because it's part of our service. We do this every week in remembrance of what Jesus has done. And that Jesus is still providing hope today. Let's close out John chapter 6, looking at verses 52 through 59. And they say this. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat, his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I in them, rather. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum that he shows us and he signals to this early in John 6 so that when the first communion actually takes place later on that we see that he's not talking about his physical flesh and his physical blood. What he's saying and what he's showing us is that he is the bread of heaven. He is the one who provides provision, provides sustenance, provides fellowship, and provides hope. 
and eternal life. And that we take, so we take the bread in a few moments when we take communion. We take the bread to remember that his body was broken and that we take this bread as a reminder in remembrance of that sacrifice and we partake of the bread to sit when he says, this is my body given up for you. Take and don't just hear about it, smell it, see it, hear and touch it, but take and eat it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then we take the cup. And it reminds us of his blood that was poured out, that the blood-stained cross and the blood-stained ground beneath the cross was there so that our stains would be removed. That we are no longer marked by our stains. We are no longer held back by the captivity. We are now set free. And yes, there will be hardship, but recognize that our light and momentary troubles are nothing compared to the surpassing glory that outweighs them all. So we recognize that we have hope and a foundation of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the blood reminds us that we are washed clean. We are set free. We are made new. We have eternal life. And so if you're on your journey and, and you, don't, you, don't, you haven't given your life to Jesus, so you don't have that relationship with him, this is not something that you need to necessarily partake in and worry about. This is something that for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus and we recognize that he is the living bread and that when we believe in him, we will not hunger and that when we trust in him, we will not have thirst, that we take the bread and the cup and it's through that he remains within us. We taste and see that he is good. We experience eternal life and that we are able to remember all those things through the act of communion. Because remember that while our stomachs may rumble and our hearts may grumble, Jesus alone can satisfy our hunger. Jesus, we thank you that you satisfy our hungers. And I know that there are people in this room that are hungering, that are broken, that are struggling, that are looking for hope in the midst of despair, that are looking for light in the midst of darkness, that are looking for life in the midst of death. I know there are people that are in this room that maybe haven't been able to surrender their lives to you yet to the point of recognizing that we no longer want to have our minds on earthly things, that our gods would not be our stomachs, that we would not give into the captivity of the way that we think the world is telling us to live, but rather we would trust in you for our salvation, that we would trust in you as the one who provides eternal life, that we would know that out of darkness comes light, that out of despair comes hope, that out of death comes life, because out of good Friday came Easter. That's the way that you work. May you work that way within us now, and may you have your way within us now. Lord, as we take the communion, may we taste and see that you are good, and may we experience the blessedness when we take our refuge in you. Thank you for being the bread of life. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. The ushers will come forward and start passing out the elements, and we'll have a time of worship by singing through songs in just a moment. So please feel free to partake in the communion as you feel led.
Now, as we leave this morning, and uh, I want to share something I've shared with you before, is that um, about 11 years ago or so, uh, my wife and I were in a bridal party for uh, a wedding that was down here in Poway, and I remember at the time uh, driving around and saying, honey, wouldn't it be so great if we lived in Poway someday? And I just remember being like, ah, oh, that was what, when I first saw the, the job list, I'm like, it's in power. I'm like, honey, this is the dream. And so we're able to, to, God has brought us here, and we're so thankful to be here. We're so happy to be here. And we've only been here for about 14 months. And there's the sadness and, and the sting of, of recognizing that something so tragic, something so um, evil can happen in our backyards, that we recognize that, you know, there are famous athletes that would move to Poway because they wanted to get away from everything. That sometimes Poway had felt like it could be a sanctuary, a place that was kind of away from some of this. The city and the country, a place in which maybe we'd be protected from some of these really tough things. And so when something like this happens in our city, it can be an especially difficult thing to process, to wrestle with, to navigate. And I know that what happened um, isn't something that reflects our city, but sadly, it does reflect the sinful nature and the crookedness and the depravity of the heart, of a sinful heart that is far from God, that people far from God are capable of doing incredibly horrible things. And so as we leave today, I knew I wanted to be a part of, part of the Poway community years ago, and I couldn't have put my, f my finger on why. And for those of you that grew up in Poway or have been a part of this place for decades, that, that it's an opportunity for us, for us as Palmerado Christian Church, even more so for us as Christians, to recognize that this is our, I don't want to say chance because that sounds like it's a positive thing, but this is an avenue in which we can be bringers of hope. That whether we knew someone or knew someone who knew someone, that there will be people that will be rattled when we go to our schools this week, when we go to our workplaces, when we go into our neighborhoods, when we go into our everyday spheres of influence, there will be people who are rattled by what's going on. And we recognize that we can be a light in a dark place, that we can be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that it's not about Pomerado Christian Church getting credit, it's about God getting glory and God being the one who can bring hope to the hopeless and provide healing to the broken and to recognize that a bruised reed he does not snap and in a, snuff, a smoldering wick he does not snuff out, that he can meet us in the midst of this and that we can be the bringers of the good news of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Philippians 2, it talks about how by gr not grumbling or complaining so that you may be children of God, flameless and pure, so that you may shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. We're called to shine no matter what, but even more so in this season, let us shine the love of Jesus to all we meet. May we come alongside people and pray for them, walk through this with them. If there are opportunities that we find out about of how we could come alongside, we will let you know. And if you want to be a part of an opportunity to worship together and pray together with other churches in the area, Trinity Church, which is at Twin Peaks in Espola, over in that area, at 7 o'clock this Wednesday night, is going to have a prayer and worship night. And all are invited. They, but the pastors wanted us to let that be known. 
But our city, our state, our country, our world is not one in which the enemy will have reign forever. That the kingdom of heaven is victorious. And that the gates of hell cannot stop the church at its finest. May we be the church. And if you need prayer, whether it's related to this or not, whether it's just prayer in general, we are a house of prayer and we would love to pray with you. So come forward and I'll pray with you after service. But go forth, be a light, be the church, and be a bringer of hope. That shows that it's only through Jesus Christ that we can truly have the satisfaction for the deepest hungers of our lives. Thank you all so much for coming. We're here for prayer. We would love to see you either Wednesday night at uh, Trinity over in um, Poway, or we'd love to see you next Sunday morning. God bless you all. We'll see you soon.